Hey there, I'm Joanne Tambrakis, and this is Marketing, Mindfulness, and Martinis. Unfiltered conversations, or as I like to say, opinions shaken, not stirred, on what's changing and what's not in business and in life as we enter into the next normal. So pour yourself your beverage of choice, and let's get to it. Honestly, I am not even sure where to start with this introduction, as my guest today has such a long and impressive resume. I first discovered and started following Jane back in 2008 or 2009. I can't really remember that far back, but I do remember that she was at F&W and she was running the Writer's Digest blog and I had started to subscribe to it. Jane is an entrepreneur. She's the founder and editor of The Hot Sheet, which is a must-read for the publishing industry, and which has been called, and I quote, the economist of publishing, but a lot easier to read, unquote. And The Hot Hot Sheet was named Media Outlet of the Year by Digital Book World in 2020. She writes, she teaches, and offers consulting services for writers. Jane has too long a list of writings to mention them all here, but since this is a podcast on marketing, and from where I sit, there is no business without marketing, I will highlight that she is the author of The Business of Writing, another must-read for writers who are serious about getting paid for their craft. Jane has spoken at over 400 events around the world, including South by Southwest, Book Expo America, the Frankfurt Book Fair, and Digital Book World, which I believe is where I got to meet you in person the first time, even though I felt like I had known you for years at that point. She calls herself a late-sleeping, bourbon-drinking editor who lives life forward, even though you could only understand it backwards, that only a writer would say that. She's not a martini lover, I guess, but I will not hold that against you. So welcome to the podcast, Jane Friedman. Thank you so much, Joanne. So I always like to start by asking my guests where they're from. Originally from southwestern Indiana, middle of cornfields. There is really nothing near where I grew up. It's it, very rural. Very rural. It's the, the, the really the heart of the Midwest or as us jaded New York types say, we call those the flyover states. That sounds yes. really awful, doesn't it? Um, <laughs> it but that... that <laughs> I used to travel a lot for business and that really was it because I flew over Indiana somewhere between Chicago and LA on the way out there. (laughs) I'm crazy, right? Um, So one of the things that is always fascinating me about you is that you have embraced digital when others, you embraced it when others in the publishing industry were hoping it was just going to kind of go away. A lot of people felt like that. And you understood that it wasn't enough to just be a good writer that there was a business that you had to understand and without a host of marketing skills. Can you tell us a little bit how that happened? My first publishing job was very formative. Um, I didn't even really intend to end up in commercial publishing per se, but I, having grown up in a very rural area, I had to get a job and make a living for myself, you know, right away. Um, So I took the first salary paid job I could find, which fortunately, luckily, was at a commercial publisher. So my first boss tasked me with researching the market for a new imprint. We were developing, this was for nonfiction. And the company was unique in that it wasn't going to publish a book unless it could identify evidence of need in the marketplace. This is in the late 90s. 
the publisher had some success with craft books and they wanted to do more craft books, but they just weren't sure what direction to go in. And so I essentially did market research by visiting craft stores and talking to different organizations, going to the club meeting of the stencilers in Cincinnati. That's where (laughs) that was the city I worked in going to rubber stamp stores and greeting card boutiques. And I put together these market research reports and I saw very directly how the research I did ended up in book proposals and then led to published books and found us authors. And then the books actually sold because they were market informed. So one of the really miraculous things at the time, it really cut my research time in half was whenever there would be a website or a blog or something, you know, this was the late nineties. So there wasn't much of this around that would give me so much data about who these people were and, and what they did and where they shopped, you know, the conversations were invaluable. So all of that, you know, I wasn't thinking in terms of, Oh, this is the future of the business. I mean, it was just, I was just trying to do my job. Um, so it was just kind of that firsthand experience of, of seeing how that made for a more successful book. It was almost a little serendipitous. It's one of my favorite words. Um, I had a early, one of my early podcasts, I had the author of uh, the serendipity mindset on. And I, I, every time I talk to one of my guests, it's like, wow, that, Another serendipitous situation. And it was interesting when you were saying that because, you know, there are people who are listening. We get a lot of different listeners on this podcast, but a lot of them are also students who don't really remember a world before you could research online and that you would actually physically. And it's not that long ago in the big scheme of things. I mean, the late 90s is not it's it's not like it's (laughs) 50 or 100 years ago. It's, you know, just going on 20, 25 years. So it's kind of that that's how we did stuff. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Exactly. That's how we we did stuff. Um, So you really built, one of the things I'm also really impressed with is that you really built a tribe in what I call the pure Seth Godin model Mm -hmm. of being very generous. You have a host of free resources on your site, um, your Sunday business sermons. And one of my favorites is that digital tools update because being a digital geek, you always seem to find stuff that I didn't know about. I'm always happy when I, when you list something, I was like, Oh, I use that. I already knew that one. Um, and it's, but it's not all for free. You also have a lot of courses and consulting, which, um, you, so you kind of had that, you know, that at some point you do have to kind of, kind of ask about it. Can you, can you tell us a little bit more about that and about what some of these, how all that stuff evolved? Part of this goes back to my time at Writer's Digest, which was part of the publisher I began working for. It also put that same house published craft books. And Writer's Digest was so service oriented and run by really good people. Not that you would expect it to be run by bad people, but it's, (laughs) um, you know, it was it was just so honest and sincere and I guess Midwestern in its way of trying to help people fulfill their dreams. You know, just the average, probably leaning more blue collar sort of person who wanted to do this thing on the side that they had always dreamt of doing. And so we saw our job as helping those people get a little bit further and trying to not be biased or judgmental in, in what they were writing or how they were approaching it. And we gave away a lot of that advice for free. Um, you know, because what the maybe because it was a Midwestern company, when people would call 
wanting to speak to someone at Writer's Digest about how to get published or how to find an agent or how to write a query, because we published that big writer's market directory. Right. The, the, you know, the woman who, why am I forgetting the name of the people who took all the calls? Because those people don't exist anymore. Um, operators, do we call them? Yeah, yeah, operator. Like <laughs> the like operator that. for the company. She wouldn't tell those people to go away. She would actually connect them to a Writer's Digest editor to answer their question one-on-one. Wow. Um, and we answered all of the letters personally that came in first on paper, then via email. And so that instilled in me just that I mean, I think it was there before, but it just really showed me how grateful people were. And it was really satisfying and fulfilling to help people. And I also felt like there were some sharks in the water. Um, So ever since the beginning of publishing, professional publishing anyway, where there's money to be made, there's also been money to be made on writers who can't get their work accepted. And so you also felt like you were saving people from making really terrible mistakes that could cost <laughs> them a lot of money. Um, so that's that's the root of why I try to be very free and generous with the basics. But if people want the more like intimate one-on-one experience or they want something that's been really well-crafted and, and well-researched, then yeah, I'm going to ask for a little bit of money. Well, you otherwise you wouldn't be able to pay the rent, as I like to say. <laughs> right. yeah, that's that's kind of how, how it is, right? Um, and I, I think it is that um, you know, you've got that business savvy and Midwestern values, which I actually I really do respect. I mean, I joke about the flyover state part, but um, there is something about those, you know, that makes people trust you. Yeah. It makes people, yeah. people trust you and say, you know what, I'm going to listen to her. And that's a big thing. I think trust is such a hard thing it's such a hard thing for anyone to have anymore because we've become so distrusting of people. Yes. And I, I think that in the writing and publishing community, there there's, I think this happens in lots of creative endeavors. Um, there's a lot of opportunity for bitterness and resentment and jealous. There's a lot of, uh, <laughs> a lot of psychological battles that get fought. And so when you come across someone who, Tell, you feel like they tell it like it is. They're not trying to pull the wool over your eyes. They're being honest, um, but kind, not mean. I think I, th- I think that's why I've been able to last as long as I have. I, I don't sugarcoat things. No, it's your. It's what we call your differentiating factor. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's like okay, I'm willing to give her money because I know that it's. I'm going to get something from my. I'm going to get. There's going to be value out of that. You know, uh, being an entrepreneur is not easy, and I want to talk a little bit in a few minutes about the hot sheet. But um, and being successful at it, in my opinion, is even harder. But from where I sit, you've made it look really easy. And again, I've watched you from the beginning, which is kind of crazy when you think about some of these people I met early on in my, when I first left corporate. Um, but do you have a secret sauce? <laughs> secret sauce. Um, I think that I never expect to get it right the first time I try something. And I'm, you know, in the not that I've followed Silicon Valley methodology or actually even admired it at this point, although maybe 10 years ago I did, but I'm really about, you need to try and experiment with something and then you'll figure out what works or doesn't work. And then you're going to improve on it. I think a lot of people get paralyzed at, you know, that I have to have it all set up just perfectly, or I have to do a lot of research so I don't make the wrong decision. Uh, I'm not going to say that I, 
I'm going to go out and fail really quickly or go and move quickly and break things. That's not exactly what I mean. It's just, you can't let that fear of getting it wrong, stop you from taking the first step. Um, Certainly in my freelance career, like I did have to be pushed. (laughs) So when I, when I left my last salaried job, uh, it wasn't willingly, Uh, I was going to get fired. And so rather than leave in disgrace, I resigned. And I thought, well, you know, I don't have another job lined up, but surely I can freelance and maybe it'll work out. And if it doesn't, something will come around. And I didn't realize that I had really built a lot of equity and following and all the work I had been doing for years and years and years. So on the one hand, it was easy. It was easy to transition into a full-time freelance and make money that matched my salary in the first year because I had already put in five, six, seven years of work in serving the community. So I wasn't some new person trying to break in. People knew my name. And they follow and they followed you because you had built you had and you had done that really through digital media. Yes. Yes. And it started primarily with Twitter, that's where I had my first kind of success. And where a lot of people, that's where they first found me. Or if they didn't find me through Writer's Digest, it was through Twitter. Um, and yeah, part of that was luck itself, just being an early adopter and figuring out what worked. Yeah. And I love the story about getting fired because I, that anyone, when I, the first time I was let go, so to speak, from I was at CBS then, I remember one of my colleagues picking up the phone and saying, is this your first time? And I'm like, what are you talking about? Was this the first time you've been let go? Because everybody who's any good always gets let go from someplace. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, people get worried about, it's another thing. People get paralyzed about, oh my God, what will I do? And Mm -hmm. sometimes it's the best thing in the world. It's almost me and my universe, but the universe saying, you know, I'm going to give you a little push here because you should be doing something different. Yeah. Yeah. I needed the push. I know I'm, I'm like that too, as much as, as much as people think that I just go out and get it all the time. Sometimes I need a little, a little energetic push. Now you also, again, you embrace social media and digital from the start as did, as did I, but the difference was that you focused on writers and as someone who was also a writer and been in the company of a lot of them, they can be a difficult group to convince and understand the yes. importance of brand building. They think my art is great. It's just going to happen. You know, that whole field of dreams idea that if you build, they will come. Well, you know, my feeling is yes, but if nobody knows that you're there, they're not going to find you. Um, So how have you managed? I think everyone has a problem with it, even not just writers. Anyone I speak to when it comes to personal, this is about me. It's even myself, I can get a little twisted about it and, and I'm in the business. So how have you managed to convince these people? How do you manage that? You know, some of them I don't convince, I think. And (laughs) and I want to add the caveat that starting on social media today, I think, is a much bigger challenge Mm -hmm. than when I started. Like I market that at 2007 when I first started dipping my toes in. It was it was so different in 2007 than it is right now. I mean, I never foresaw where this was going to go. And by that, I mean, it's a much more toxic, fearful place than it's ever been. Yes. And so if you haven't been engaging on social media for all the time that I've been engaging, I just can't even imagine trying to get, find your comfort zone when you're fearful all the time. Um, So 
where does that leave us? I think the first message people need to hear is that you don't need to be on all of these platforms or networks. And I do believe there is going to be at least one where you do feel comfortable and you're not in fear. Um, it's going to, but it's going to be different for everyone, you know, cause there, we all have different triggers or things that we're afraid of. Um, and then I think the other piece is realizing most people who do go on social media or, you know, whether they're going there with some trepidation or not, they're actually looking for something that entertains them, informs them, makes them feel better. Um, most of us aren't going on social media to pick a fight or for conflict or for drama. We're going for connection and relationships. Mm -hmm. So I try to tell writers, you can be that light for someone else. You can be the reason that people find social media a force for good. And social media at its heart is, is writing. Well, I mean, I know there are these image focused social media sites or there's TikTok. Let's, let's set aside TikTok. A lot of the social media that you could enjoy it's all about being a great writer. I agree. Expressing yourself. And so you can decide, look, these are the things I'm going to focus on. I'm not going to focus on these other issues because that's not why I'm here. <laughs> and, they, and they make me feel afraid, which if that's politics, it's okay not to engage yes, in political issues. Mm -hmm. So I do think there's a way for everyone to figure out what's right for them. And I'll share just a short inspiring story. I love this story. I've worked with a client for many years now who uh, I think she's now in her seventies or maybe she's in her sixties. And in 1980s, when she published her first book, it's a nonfiction book on the decision whether or not to have children. Oh, wow. She has now 1980s and 1980s. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And she's put out a new edition and in her marketing and promotion of that, you know, she's thinking, what can I do? How can I reach a new young audience? Um, she ended up finding a Reddit, a subreddit called Fence-Sitter, which is where people gather to talk about this decision in their lives, the, the pros and the cons. The, the subreddit doesn't try to convince you one way or the other. It's just for honest exploration. And she found this and realized she had a lot of wonderful things that she could offer, not by my book, but like advice and tips and questions. And uh, she's been participating in that group for more than a year to really great effect. She loves that group. And I think a lot of people think, oh, I'm too old to get on social media. I can't, you know, it's for young people. It is not. It's not. It is not. You can, no, you can find a place. I love that story though, because I, again, you know, I, whenever I talk about Reddit with my students, I'm like, this is a place you can definitely get a group going. It's probably to me the most aesthetically unappealing of all the <laughs> yes. websites. Um, it's just, just like really, this is just, it, it is nothing but text. But you're right. It's it's a great story that there is that and that kind of goes back to the original premise of this whole idea of the long tail of yeah. marketing, and that's what the internet gives us. That you'll find your group. They're out there someplace. Yes. Um, you just may have to hunt, and it is harder. I couldn't agree with you more about how much harder it is to start on it at this point, because yeah. that's a whole other conversation about yeah. my love hate relationship with social media. Yeah. Um, but let's talk about the hot sheet. How did you come up with this idea? 
This was in 2015 when the publication started. And I had a long time, well, five-year collaboration with journalist Porter Anderson. Mm -hmm. He had been guesting for my site for quite some time. And we had, you know, covered conferences together. We saw each other multiple times a year because we were going to the same industry events. He was at the time an editor for the bookseller, which is a UK trade publication. And then he switched over to Publishing Perspectives, which is owned by Frankfurt Book Fair. In any event, really active in the book industry and reporting on it. And so we were just talking about what are things we could do together? Like we wanted, we were just kind of batting around suggestions. Like he was, we were thinking podcast and I thought, well, you know, neither of us are that great on audio. Uh, as far as like, we don't edit audio. We don't have any experience doing podcasts. Why don't we focus on something we know really well, which is, well, frankly, writing <laughs> on a screen. <laughs> and so we, we came up with the idea of an, of a newsletter, a paid newsletter. Um, I already had a platform and a following and I had all of these people subscribe to me for free things, but I wasn't necessarily selling them anything on a regular basis. I had my consulting and occasionally I'd have a class, but I didn't have a regular offering. So we, we landed on that idea, which was partly seated in a conversation many years prior. This is probably important to say how ideas sometimes don't come to fruition until the time is right. I had had a conversation with author MJ Rose, who's a marketer and she oh. writes genre fiction. And we had talked about doing something comparable, but in a very different manner. And so I was, I still, I really, that idea really appealed to me, but it just didn't, it didn't play out for lots of different reasons at the time. And so I was still thinking about that. Um, so, yeah, so we launched it in 2015. It's now my, my baby. I, I bought him out and I carry it on by myself. Um, that all fell out when my husband lost his publishing job and <laughs> um, he joined my business and it just changed a lot of the dynamics of how I work and, and what I wanted to do moving forward. I love that. I love that. It's your husband's involved in your work from home experts. <laughs> yes. Uh, um, so I, I want to ask you one thing about this. It, it goes back to the social media and because you kind of, you're a, a guru in this space. Now, I know that for a period of time, the publishing industry would look to see how many followers a potential author had before they would even consider giving them any kind of a deal. And, you know, what I know, and I'm sure you know about the number of followers is that they really don't mean a whole lot. It's really about the engagement. But are they still, and to me, it was always like, you don't really understand what social media is about. That's what you're gauging, how you're going yeah. to decide to take on an author. Is that still happening or have they started to wake up to engagement is what's important? You can have less followers and a much more engaged audience and that will be much more valuable. I would like to say there's an enlightened view there, like what you're describing, but I still think there's a lot of knee jerk benchmark sort of like, if you don't, if you don't have 20,000 followers on Instagram, I'm not even going to look at you if you're in the lifestyle category, that sort of thing. So I, I do think it's context dependent. So what, what sort of book you're trying to sell, how competitive it is. Do you have a message or a, a benefit in your book that's so new and fresh that people, there's a, like a built-in market and people know it, you're going to, this book's going to sell whether or not the following is there. The following will come because um, you're just kind of on the cutting edge, perhaps. I'd also like to think that in addition to the engagement, 
you know, both agents and publishers are thinking more holistically. Like there are lots of ways to make waves in the world. Um, there are lots of people that you might know, connections and relationships you might have that can, even if you don't have the numbers. Um, certainly if you have an email newsletter that's very successful, that's going to turn heads. And I think it can make up uh, for like, if you haven't been active on social. I know people forget that email is part of digital marketing. Indeed. Because yeah. it sounds so old school, and yet I still think it's probably one of the most effective forms. I'm one of the I'm in that camp. One of the most effective things out there. So, how has the pandemic affected the book industry? I mean, I've read a lot that book sales went up because people had nothing to do. Um, I know I stopped going to the library, so I think I was probably buying. I happen to love libraries, but the idea of touching mm-hmm. bought libraries were closed for a long time anyway. But um, is that true, or is that is what's what? How has that been? Yeah, it's the pandemic has been one of the best things to happen to publishing in my career. I have never seen this kind of growth. There are more book sales being made across all categories, all formats, all territories. There are more deals being made. There are more um, deals being made in Hollywood as well for book-based IP. It's just coming up roses everywhere. It's, you know... and. Uh, it's harder to get a a hold on what's happening on the self pub side. I think it's going to depend maybe on how those authors, you know, what their strategies have been, but I have to assume they're seeing more success too. We certainly saw Kindle unlimited. That's the subscription service that many indie authors have their books in. We saw um, the payouts from that program increase, which indicates more reading in that program. So yeah, all of the key performance indicators are up and people expect it to continue. Like, uh, I think the caveat here though, is it's changed the sales mix. So if pre-pandemic, we were at 50% online sales, mm-hmm. post during the pandemic, we were at 70%. And so far, no one's expecting us to go back to 50. So there's this concern that this is putting more power in the hands of companies like Amazon, um, which pretty much no one wants, but Amazon. And it, it could change how books get marketed and sold. Although that was going to happen anyway. Let's say it's accelerated that it's put it on a faster track. No, I mean, I, I can, I mean, personally, I prefer, I still prefer a book. I'm very old school like that. And, and I always get very, um, it makes me very happy when I see my, my grad students, they prefer books to read. But I broke down during the pandemic and I got a Kindle. Um, and I still only, I can only read fiction. I've decided that nonfiction, I have to still have a book in my hand, but I can read fiction on a Kindle. So I don't know if there's any data on that or if that's just me, but um, maybe- oh, it's. Yeah, it's not just you. Um, well, oh, you mean the fiction versus nonfiction, or yeah, the I, mean, fact- I can read fiction book on my Kindle, but I don't want to read my nonfiction there. It just yeah. it's too hard for me to highlight. I prefer to just underline, and that's what I do yeah. with nonfiction. Yeah, so I don't know whether that, but I did. Again, my point is is that I broke down and I finally got a Kindle, and uh, and it's okay. I still like reading a book book better, but um, I think that's yeah. part of the whole experience. Yeah, there were many people during the pandemic, especially in Europe, the what, what the industry people called the never-evers, the never-evers who would never ever buy an ebook or read on a Kindle um, finally did. <laughs> and so it's, uh, 
that's it's going to change behavior for for the foreseeable future. Yeah, I wonder how it's going to affect libraries because I'm that was my that my big my big reason initially because I couldn't go to the library anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, so how has your business adapted p- to pandemic life? Or did it did it even miss a beat? There were two big changes. One was I stopped traveling and going to conferences. And I had been on a pretty aggressive travel schedule, like a conference a month, sometimes two. Now, these are typically over weekends, but um, it certainly affected what the bandwidth for doing other types of work and for just general business development, because I was always catching up from being away. Um, But I kind of, I don't know, you get into that. I'd been doing it for years and hadn't really examined why or if it was healthy or if maybe it was preventing me from doing other things that would be better. Uh, So that all came to an end. And then the other big change was in October, before the pandemic, I had started hosting webinars, which I've taught webinars for 10 years, but I hadn't hosted them myself with other instructors. Uh, Now, I know the sorts of deals because I'm in the industry and I've been at companies that offered these deals. I know what instructors are getting offered for webinars and the deals aren't that great. I thought I can definitely do better and still make plenty of money and everyone wins. So I started this webinar series, invited guests and, you know, started at one a month, increased it to two a month. And then when the pandemic hit, as you can imagine, the registrations really started taking off. I mean, they were doing fine before, but then they really skyrocketed. So that was just partly luck. Uh, And I also could do it because now I had my husband who had joined my business just three months prior to help handle the post-production and the customer service. I don't think I would have been able to do it if it was just myself. I love it. I love it. And one of the things too that I've noticed about your pricing is that it's, you're not trying to, um, I don't know what the right word is right now, but they're very reasonable, which is true to your market. You know who your market is. I mean, there's a lot of writers who may have very successful jobs during the day and they're doing it on the side, but there are also writers that, you know, are not, they're earning a living, but they're not, they're not living in a palace. So, you know, if it's a $29 course and I know I signed up for one of them, um, <laughs> it's so easy. It's, it's an impulse buy as opposed to, gee, I got to think about 79 or right. 20. Yeah. There's a lot of these price points that are out there. There's a, there's a, something of a story behind that because I started doing webinars when I was a Writer's Digest employee. And the management at the time we began our program was all about high pricing. You know, that was the way to drive revenue, increase the price. <laughs> it's a really limited way of thinking about a business. Um, but that's kind of what it boiled down to. And I got really resentful. Um, and it's one of the reasons I left that I just kept getting pressured on the pricing and I lost the fight most times. And that happened on webinars. I wanted to start at 25, 49, even I tried to make an argument for 49, but I I lost it and they doubled the price. Uh, And I hated that. And I, I resolved that if I ever offered these myself, I was not going to be charging a hundred dollars for a webinar. Um, but you know, they, they still do it. They still do it successfully. Um, I don't think it's unethical, but I think it's it's not. It doesn't fit what I'm trying to do. Yeah, no. I mean, I actually. I mean, I I I, I think what you're doing is great. That's what I think. Um, so, 
and how and and, and so I'm gonna I'm gonna wrap up here now because I think you and I could talk till for forever. <laughs> I, um, you've got that, and I think also the part that's um, I just want to add this in before I get into my little lightning round of questions at the end is that one of the other things that I really do admire this about you is that again you 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 said you grew up on a farm and yet you've got such a innate business sense. And I'm sure, you know, I'm sure you learned a lot of it along the way, but there's just that it's, it's very impressive. That's, that was my, I have to, I always have to compliment people when I, <laughs> I, need to, I can't hold it back in. We don't say nice, enough nice things to any, each other anymore. So I try and walk the walk. Everyone Thank likes you. to find something wrong. Okay. So I like to end with like a little lightning round here of um, questions. Are you game? I hope you're game. <laughs> Someone's going to say no to me one day. No, I really don't want to do it. Um, your favorite social network? It's still Twitter. Despite all of its failings, it's still Twitter. It's still Twitter. Um, something people would never guess about you? I spent several years actively um, creating, producing, crafting pottery. Um, and if I were, and I wish, I've got a little outbuilding that I, you know, I have dreams of, I'm going to put a pottery wheel in there <laughs> and start up again. Aha. Uh-huh. That explains something I saw you share on Instagram yesterday about some kind of pottery that I never had heard of before. Um, the last series that you binged? Halt and Catch Fire. And I almost didn't, I almost stopped watching it. Uh, the first season is really dark. And I thought, why am I continuing with this? But I'm so glad I did. (laughs) I found that with euphoria. I went through the whole season and the first episode or two, I was like, this is really dark. I don't want to think that these young, this is how they're living their life. And then the next thing, you know, I think it was, I blame it all on Zendaya because I think she was just fantastic in it. Um, The most used app on your phone. Uh, probably Nest because I'm constantly changing the thermostat. I like to I like to sleep in really cold temperatures at night, um, and it just requires constant monitoring to ensure I can reach that temperature by 11 p.m. <laughs> um, a food you can't live without: buttered toast. Ah, what you miss most about pre-COVID life? Drinking at bars. Oh, me too. Me too. Me too. But we're back into it. Now you can sit on the, at least around here, you can. Um, what do you think you might miss the most as we re enter the world? The routine, the comfort of routine and having, like just knowing exactly how the day is going to unfold and having those rituals that, that I think early in my life, I really resisted ritual and routine. I thought it was, I don't know, for really boring people, but the pandemic especially has taught me that it's very powerful for getting things done, for stability, for psychological stability. (laughs) There were a lot of bad things about the pandemic too. Um, I don't want to like say it was all sunshine and rainbows, but that was helpful, the routine. No, I'm, I'm, I'm right there with you. I think it also reminded me that I don't have to, I don't have to book myself every single day of the week. I, especially when it comes to social events, I don't need to be out four or five. It's just not, it's okay to be home. Um, and what advice do you have for our listeners who might have that dream of writing a book and getting published? Two pieces of advice. One, be patient with yourself. I think it typically takes more time than people ever guess or estimate 
and they expect success to come quickly or they expect themselves to reach a certain level of expertise in their craft too quickly. It's, I find that it, it just takes time to get better and to get published. Um, and then the other piece of that, which kind of goes hand in hand with it, is to try and resist some of those negative psychological things that inevitably crop up, like the comparison game comparing your success timeline with other people's timeline um, or letting bitterness and resentment set in. I just have seen that so many times. It kills people's momentum and inspiration. You have to find, I don't, it, there's no solution other than finding your own personal way to shake it off. Well, we look, yeah, that's great advice. I think, you know, we live in a world where we're, and it's even worse now with social media, we're constantly comparing ourselves yeah. to, or, being it's suggested that we compare ourselves to other people um so if we're not conscious of it it's an easy trap to fall into yeah um at least even myself i can get caught up in that and it's like well where am i so jane where can people find you um i'll put all this in the show notes as well as well as the link to her book the business of writing and of course your website with all your courses but um where else would you suggest would be most fun to follow you right now uh, the best place by far is my website, janefriedman.com, because it, it has spokes to all of the places that I'm active. Some folks might be particularly interested in my Sunday business sermons. There's a playlist of them on my YouTube channel where I discuss more of the sorts of things we've been covering, like going into the nooks and crannies of my career and why has it happened this way and why do I, how do I think about it now? So I, I try to deconstruct the success to the to the extent I can. Wonderful. Thank you so much. My pleasure. pleasure. Thank you, Joanne. Thanks so much for listening to Marketing Mindfulness and Martinis. If you liked what you heard, please share with your friends. Give us a rating on iTunes or Spotify so other people can find us and hit the subscribe button so you never miss an episode. If you've got a question you'd like answered or a topic you'd like me to cover, please drop me a note, info at joannetombrakis.com. And until next time, remember, whatever got you to where you are isn't enough to keep you there. <laughs> <laughs>